0: Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate.
1: And I'm Andrea.
0: She's my mom, and I librarian. I'm my me, and kind of a writer, and we read things, and so we talk about them, and we have been reading the saga of the Swamp Thing, aka the Alan Moore, Stephen Bissett, John Toddlebin, Rick Veach... And etc. Run on Swamp Thing from the '80s, and this is our last episode on it. We have reached volume six. Uh, I don't remember what this one was called in the original printings of the graphic novels, like the Return or something like that.
1: The edition that we have, it's called Reunion.
0: Reunion. That's what I was thinking. And
1: it's issues fifty-seven to sixty-four that all take place in nineteen eighty-seven, and this is the last. Compilation that was written exclusively by Alan Moore.
0: Yeah, and I think this is one. The only other thing that I think that exists of Alan Moore writing Swamp Thing is a one random issue of DC Comics Presents that's like a Superman Swamp Thing team up sort of, except Superman doesn't remember them meeting because he's like he's like deliriously sick during it. That's called the Red Line. It's a good comic. I don't know why it's not in this collection. I guess because it's hard to fit it into the overall plot.
1: I'm just going to say this right now before we get into the entire volume. This is the horniest swamp thing to date. Not the sexiest, Mm -hmm. but there is a lot of horny men in this that are looking for love.
0: Yeah. Which I kind
1: of like, I don't know what mindset Alan Moore was in at the time that he wrote this, but there is a lot of dogs in this.
0: I think that this is. I've called, referred to this story that kind of starts with the. Um, Blue val. Is it called My Blue Valentine? Kind of starts with that and continues to the end of this. I've, I've referred to it as Swamp Things Odyssey. Yeah. But I think it really is a riff on the Odyssey. And that is a seminal work of Greek literature. And let me tell you, the Greeks were a horny people.
1: Well, I think that there's some kind of testosterone elevation going through the whole writing team
0: and i think the odyssey is is it is a work about thwarted desire and longing and that's what this is too
1: oh definitely Yeah, this
0: is something longing for for home longing for abby being unable to reach her and every lots of the people he meets those themes are reflected in them as well yeah. It's also the most DC, like, even more so, than, I think, than the Crisis on Infinite Earth stuff. This is the most, like, DC universe with, you know, with a capital D, a capital C, and a capital U collection of issues that we've had yet.
1: Yeah. Well, let's get into it and see if that theory pans out.
0: Yeah, so we start with uh, two issues, a two-part story. Uh, the first one is called Mystery in Space... And the second one is called Exiles. These are both drawn by... Excuse me. These are both drawn by Rick Veach and inked by Alfredo Alcala, like most of this volume is. Veach has really become, like, the regular artist on this. So much so that after uh, the last issue of this, he takes over as the writer as well. I can't really remember distinctly what happens in each of these issues. Like, but the whole story is basically Swamp Thing has reached out into space... And projected his mind into the last sort of hardy remnants of foliage left on the planet Ran, which is the home to the the part time home of space adventurer Adam Strange.
1: So this issue Mysteries in Space starts out, in fact, with Adam Strange. I guess we're gonna have to go into this, but from what I'm understanding is that there's such thing as a Zeta Beam. Mm -hmm. that appears sporadically and when he senses this data beam it is the only way that he can teleport to the world of bran where his lady love lives so he gets the signal and he is hunting down the signal which at one point was supposed to be in australia he gets to australia he realizes that there's now a mall built where the beam is supposed to pick him up. And he ends up in the men's room. Of a mall. <laughs> yep. Which I'm sure is some comment on consumerism. Mm-hmm. And he gets to tell. He fights with a man. He ends up teleporting to Rand, But as he's there. As he's in the beam. Transferring himself to the, the this planet. He crosses paths. Intersects. Cross streams or whatever you want to call it. With Swamp, Swamp Thing, mind. Swamp Thing's mind, who is trying to search the universe to find a planet that's compatible to his current. We went through this extremely in detail in the last episode. His current electrical, like uh, his biofeedback rhythm that he is now, you know, portraying or producing. So he ends up crossing over with Adam, who has a memory of. Swamp Thing and Swamp Thing has a memory of this bathroom scene, and they both end up on the planet. So yeah. that's the part where I am now. So tell, and he, so he comes to the planet. The planet is practically dead. It's a barren planet, mm-hmm. and he manifests as this amazing red cactus monster. Yeah. But before we get into that, tell me a little bit about Adam Strange.
0: So Adam Strange is. A Silver Age character, I believe. Uh first appearing in Brave and the Bold, which is you know, was a kind of a, a showcase for a lot of DC Comics characters. And he's basically just a riff on, you know, uh John Carter, Flash Gordon type characters. He's a Earthman. I don't remember... Eventually, he is made into an archaeologist. I don't remember what his, like, profession is originally. And, uh... He gets hit with this Zeta Beam, and every so often, he teleports back and forth between Ran, and there's kind of, like, a tragic Starcrods romance thing with him, and I think her name is Alana, who he loves, but he can't be with always, because while he has to hunt down the Zeta Beam to teleport to Ran... Once he's on Ran and the Zeta Beam passes by, it just picks him up and forcibly teleports him back to Earth for a indeterminate amount of time.
1: Which I m- imagine that's why he's so single-mindedly focused on having sex with his lady when he's on the planet. But he accidentally gets involved in this political intrigue, yes. which is happening. And this is another thing that confused me, because when I saw these... The, what are they, the Thargarians.
0: Thanagarians.
1: Thanagarians. I thought that that was Hawkman. And that's why I was confused that they were being such dicks.
0: Well, to be fair, Hawkman is often a dick. <laughs> it's part of why I love him so much. So we have talked, If listeners who are familiar with our Sandman series have heard about my undying love for the Martian Manhunter. Another one of my favorite B-list DC characters uh, that I am disproportionately obsessed with is Hawkman. I love Hawkman. I have a ton of sketches from uh, cons of Hawkman. Anytime I would get a sketch from an artist, I would always ask them to draw Hawkman or Optimus Prime (laughs) (laughs) or the Juggernaut. Uh, So I'm going to post some of those on the Twitter at some point if I can uh, dig them up and scan them. But yeah, so Thanagar is just the planet. The original Is that well,
1: what Hawkman is from that planet?
0: Some versions but of Hawkman. But he Hawk is man, not
1: this Hawkman that's in this man who is a Hawkman, lowercase h. Yeah, so, he's not capital H Hawkman.
0: No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, so the 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 uh the Silver Age version of Hawkman. He's generally the most famous one. He is Qatar Hall. Uh, throughout this story, Adam Strange references Qatar Hall and Shaira Hall, who are the Silver and Bronze Age versions of Hawkman and Hawkgirl. And they're uh, cops from Thanagar that end up on Earth. And they eventually get tied into this whole reincarnation story that ties them to this Golden Age Hawkman who was a human archaeologist who was a reincarnation of an Egyptian warrior prince. But that is a whole... Other discussion for all other time. At one point, Hawkman's continuity was so confusing that DC forbid anyone from using him in any stories because it was just too much of a mess. I think that's part of why I love him so much. So, the Hawkman costume that he wears is actually a uniform. So, on Thanagar, there's a bunch of people that are dressed in similar outfits to Hawkman and Hawk Girl, And you'll notice that while her outfit looks... Except for the fact that it's much skimpier... <laughs> Because it's a, two emissaries from Thanagar are on Rand. One is a, a woman in, who is of a higher rank, and one is a man who is of a lower rank. So her costume, except for being skimpier, looks almost exactly like Hawk girls. The other guy's, and Strange points this out at one point, his costume is missing the wings on the side of the head. It's just like a flat uh, like bird helmet without like the big plumage on the side that Hawkman has that denotes his rank.
1: Right, that's when I realized he was not capital H Hawkman.
0: Yeah, so these are just, the Thanagarians are basically like space Spartans. They're kind of a warrior, militant culture. These these hawk people with the wings and the helmets are like a warrior caste. There's a lot of casts on Thanagar.
1: So they're there, Adam Strange realizes, to negotiate with the Ran- Ranians, or the Rans, or whatever. Ranians. Ranians.
0: Or Ranians, I guess. Yes.
1: Natch. To bargain with them in to offer them a way to restore the their planet. Their planet is infertile. It's a desert planet. Mm. planet. They can't grow food. All the people are barren, so they
0: can't reproduce. Yeah, there's a, a huge famine going on.
1: So they claim to have a way to help them restore their planet. In return, they want access to the Zeta Beam, which triggers something in Adam's mind where he's not quite sure why this is a bad idea, but he realizes that these Targaryens, I'm manifesting my Game of Thrones pronunciation, (laughs) are up to something shady. But while he's trying to figure it out, he gets a call that says, there's a monster a cactus monster attacking the suburbs and he has to go and deal with that.
0: And so the early so two things. The um the thing that the Thanagarians want to trade is access to the Azorbicon, which is kind of this like do anything space technology that the that hawkman always has that's like powers his ship and stuff. <laughs> but the thing with the Thanagarians is they're like tech pirates. Right. So they got this thing from an, the Absorbicon from another planet and now they're going to trade it to this planet to get their tech. And part of the reason that Adam is so confused and on alert about them in the Zeta Beam is literally all the Zeta Beam does is transport things between Ran and Thanagar. I mean Ran and Earth. So why would they... It's not like a universal teleporter so he doesn't really understand what they would want with it Wait, initially. It's
1: so first, the first time he fights Swamp Thing because he doesn't... He's just... It's, as. You know, the Rainians call him. He's like a human ape man. And he just immediately <laughs> starts fighting Swamp Thing. And he thinks that he destroys well, him. This is a
0: regular occurrence in the classic Adam Strange comics. Is, uh, some weird space monster shows up and threatens uh, the city. And he goes and he fights it. So, like, this, from his perspective, this is a normal Adam Strange story. Oh, there's a cactus monster. Let me go and blow it up.
1: But he's up. He's more upset, I think, with Swamp Thing, is because he's having like a romantic evening with mm-hmm. his lady, looking at some erotic space art, and then
0: <laughs> which he doesn't get because the Iranians have a different aesthetic philosophy, right, from the humans. Also, Swamp Thing has picked up his because of the collision in the Zeta Beam flow. Adam Strange dropped his backpack with his jetpack in it. And Swamp Thing has picked it up, and he's seen the patch in it that says Seattle. So he knows there's an Earth person here. And so he he is looking for Adam Strange. And Adam Strange is using his girlfriend's jetpack.
1: Yeah, so then after he fights him, he destroys him. Swamp Thing regenerates. He has the backpack. And he starts walking to the city, and he sees a statue of Adam Strange. And he realizes that Adam Strange is a human and as a human, he may be able to help him. And that's where he ends. The, the issue ends with him going to the city and saying, like, I got to find this guy again.
0: Yeah. And so this issue is where we start to see. We get the first hints of Alan Moore doing an Alan Moore on Adam Strange. Because traditionally, Adam Strange is just kind of a very straightforward, square jawed, Buck Rogers, space hero guy. And here we see him, he's kind of haggard. He's tormented by the fact that he never gets to spend any time with his the lady he loves because he's constantly being teleported back and forth. He's kind of an unwitting tool of the Iranians. They look down on him. They're, like, space racist against him, which is not a traditional element of, uh, of the Adam Strange stories. And so he's adding some, you know he's he's uh, scruffing him up a little bit in the same, in the same way that he would, you know, to other characters. It's not quite as dramatic as this Swamp Thing thing, but I think we're we're approaching a kind of light anatomy lesson on Adam Strange in the next issue, which I think is pretty interesting.
1: I think it's interesting too that this is like sort of a nod to the golden age and mm-hmm. you can see it reflected in the artistic style, especially the covers. Like the cover for the next issue is kind of like classic comic book where your swamp thing is fighting and and uh Adam Strange has his like uniform on and his weird helmet and he's you know it's kind of like very actiony not like as kind of like intellectual and beautiful as the other issues of the swamp thing you know where they showcase him like looking very you know dramatic he's like a red version of himself but he kind of looks for, Kind of, like, primitive and kind of ape-like. And he's, you know, big stout hands and he's fighting monsters. So I think that's interesting.
0: Well, one of the things about Veach is that he is an artistic chameleon. He can draw in, like, any style. And I think he does sort of subtly change his style in these stories to be a little bit more of a straightforward rock'em sock'em superhero action thing. And a little bit more, like you said, closer to that sort of silver and golden age art. Especially with the way he uses, like, shadows in the city of Ranagar. That's another confusing thing, is the hawk people are from Thanagar. (laughs) The other people are from Ran, but their capital city is called Ranagar. Yeah, well.
1: (laughs) But, I mean, I think you can see it also in the style, because it's less, there's less subtlety in the colors, the brighter Mm -hmm. blocks, there are less tones, you know, this is like, you know, black and yellow and red the primary colors um so the next issue is called exiles it's 58 and it continues the story but before we get into it can you explain these liquid animals
0: Uh, i don't know if they're uh i'm gonna be honest i haven't read a ton of adam strange solo stuff. my familiarity with him is mostly from him popping up in other books but i i think they're they're just an alien species these sort of sentient water creatures that Sardath who is uh Alana's father and like a important high councilman and scientist on Ran keeps as like partially pets and partially aesthetic objects but they because you know unlike a lot of people on Ran Adam is like in sort of in touch with his emotions he's like nice to the water creatures, so they express uh, some level of loyalty to him. But I mean, they're basically just, you know, dogs or cats, but made of water.
1: So does Adam Strange have the costume, does he wear that on Earth, or is that just a costume he wears when he's...
0: He just wears it on Ram. On Earth, he's just like a normal dude. Like, we see him later on in the comic, and he's just wearing, like, jeans and a t-shirt.
1: Yeah. So the issue opens with him putting on his costume and talking to his wife, woman, lady, whatever she is to him. She's kind of like high society. Yeah. And then of course it's very offensive to them that he she takes up with this like primitive earth man. But mm, apparently but Yes, but apparently their the problem with their fertility has gotten to the point where there's no more children left on the planet. And I guess she's constantly checking her fertility. To see if anything changes.
0: Yeah. Uh Yes.
1: So uh, once again, they're romancing each other. And then he gets the call that the swamp creature is back. Or he doesn't know it's a swamp creature. The cactus creature, he
0: thinks. The it cactus is. demon. That's what they call it. Yes.
1: Him. Is back. So and he...
0: he's so mad about this. I like how, like, just exacerbated. Like, how tired of being a space adventure hero Adam Strange is. Yeah. So like, and he just wants he just wants to hang out with his girlfriend.
1: So at this point, he realizes that he can't just keep killing him, and he tries to reason with him. And that's when Swamp Thing explains that, "Hey, I am an Earth elemental, mm-hmm. a plant elemental, and you shot my head off, but I'm <laughs> back. And I realize that you are in yourself also out of place on this planet. So they come to a deal. Swamp Thing agrees to try to help them." with their land problems, not their fragility problems. He, he can't help with that, yeah. but he can help them with the land. So he decides, Adam Strange and he work together. They're going to go out to the desert. Swamp Thing is going to try to use his elemental powers to go deep into the earth to see if there's any fertile soil left, because I guess of the... He, it, this part confuses me where he refers to, they keep referring to the radiation problem as a tiny radiation
0: problem. Yeah, I think that's just them being like diplomatic and unwilling to admit there. They said they had a minor n- nuclear war and they also he, refer to it as a nuclear folly. Yes. And that has rendered, it's clearly not minor because it has rendered the entire planet infertile and in, largely incapable of producing uh, food and trees and stuff. And so what Swamp Thing is going to do is reach below the irradiated level of the soil and bring the fertile soil up to the surface. And this uh, enrages the Thanagarians because they really, for some reason, wink, wink, they really want that Zeta Beam.
1: Right. And this is when Swamp Thing points out to Adam that if the Zeta Beam only goes from Rand to Earth, what purpose does it serve them? And then he says, well, maybe they want to take over Earth. And Adam Strange is like, no, why would they do that? Yeah,
0: because in his (laughs) mind, Earth is boring and stupid. He's constantly trying to get off of Earth and get to here. Why would anyone want to go to Earth from his perspective? This is right, though, because this story ends up being a bit of like a prelude to a big crossover story uh, in the broader DC universe called Invasion, where a coalition of alien uh, species, including the Thanagarians, invade Earth.
1: So naturally, when they find this out during the political debate that they're having, the Renians and the Thargarians, and then Swamp Thing gets involved, he goes out to the desert and the bird people attack him.
0: Yeah, the council all votes to go with Swamp Thing instead of the Thanagarians. And then they follow him out and attack him. And they use a device on him, this like mind melter or something. That is basically a sort of parallel evolution thing to the Scrambler that Lex Luthor designed. And that starts doing to him what that did on Earth, which obviously freaks him out. Uh, But then Adam Strange shows up, and Adam Strange and the Swamp Thing fight the Hawk people, and it's a pretty cool fight, and it ends with the liquid creature uh, killing the Thanagarian commander for Adam Strange to protect him.
1: In the form of a cat.
0: Yeah, a big, a big water cat that engulfs her and drowns her. And her helmet comes off and we see that she has a mullet.
1: Yeah. And then there's sort of like this, the new evolved swamp thing that we know where he's very zen now and he can control himself. He goes into the desert and he calls up the fertile soil. Simultaneously... You find out that Adam Strange's wife is now expecting a child,
0: and that's all delivered completely silently.
1: Right, and it's sort of they show like him, like almost like he's meditating in the in the green.
0: With lots of Buddhist symbolism in this collection. We'll talk more about that later. Yeah, and then and this is oh, yeah, what were you going to say
1: after he ends up bringing the soil back and starting to help the planet recover the people decide they're going to, in in complete fictional fashion, decide that they're going to take better care of their planet, which I guess is a heavy-handed comment on environmentalism. He talk, Swamp Thing talks to Adam Strange, and this is the part I don't understand. He asks, Swamp Thing asks Adam if there's a planet, a green planet, that he can go to. And then Adam Strange says, yeah, sure, there's this planet, j eight five six or whatever the number is." You can go over there. It's all plants. You'll really like it. And that's one thing. It's like, cool, I'll check it out. He doesn't actually tell him that it's like a planet of sentient plant beings, which would stop a lot of the trouble that he gets into in the next episode. Yeah, issue. I think
0: it's just Adam is just neglectful. I don't, I think in his mind, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I, I guess in his mind, it's like, you should. Can I see the page? You have it pulled up. Yeah. Let's see what exactly what he says. Okay, no, so he here's what happens. He says there's a vegetable civilization. I bet. He doesn't tell Swamp Thing that all the plants are sentient. Because he probably doesn't know that. Right. The, that's the problem that happens with Swamp Thing. Is he reaches out for plant material to build from, and he can't find any that isn't sentient. Because on that planet, all plant matter is sentient, and all animal matter is non-sentient. So he does know that the plants are sentient. He just doesn't know it's all of them.
1: Yeah, and so the story ends with her revealing that she's expecting a child, and I'm assuming that the government of the planet are going to be, one, happy that she's except- expecting a child, but also on the flip side, realizes this child's going to be half rainy and half human.
0: So, yeah, so and then also the actual end is um, Adam Strange gets <laughs> teleported back to Earth
1: Right, as he right in the middle of like this happy moment where they're talking about the child, he gets zapped right back to earth.
0: Tell, tell the joke, you told me. The David Bowie reference. That was really funny.
1: <laughs> okay, so at that that point, Swamp Thing says to Adam Strange that he wants him to give him a message to his wife. Yeah. Which I, at one point, made a joke about saying that it was very much like the David Bowie song where he says, tell my wife I love her very much. And then as he's getting that message, he disintegrates and he goes back to Earth.
0: Yeah. But she you knows. She knows. She knows. Um, so the thing that I was talking about the, the, when I was like, oh, there's like a light anatomy lesson on Adam Strange. Is there's this implication that builds throughout this issue that Adam Strange is basically a breeding stud that all of his like adventures and stuff are a falsehood constructed by Sardath that he was it was no accident cuz the Zeta beam is supposed to be like a it was a communications test and they bring that up like why would a communications test teleport you here why would it work that way and there's this implication that his arrival on Ran and all of his adventures were engineered by Sardath in order to use him as genetic stock to end the fertility crisis on Ran. And there's also, I think, maybe I'm reading into this, but there's also this kind of implication when he gets teleported back that, like, maybe he's not coming back unless he makes it back on his own. I kind of wish we had gotten that story. I know that, like, a few years after this is published, there's a mini series about Adam Strange where his kid is born, and I don't know if that deals with any of those implications.
1: So, maybe he just didn't expect his daughter to take up with
0: this, like, Man. Or, or maybe he set it all up maybe he engineered their romance maybe he released all those conspicuous monsters into the city to turn adam strange into exactly the kind of hero that he knew his daughter would fall in love with
1: well that the problem is is every time the monsters show up he can't he has to stop sexing up the ladies <laughs> and then run and fight the monsters so if they're trying to use him as breathing stock, then they wouldn't like in essence cock block him with all these monsters like I'm saying,
0: maybe the monsters are necessary to, to, you know... Get them
1: randy enough to... (laughs) Yeah, maybe
0: the princess wouldn't have fallen in love with this weird foreign man if he wasn't, like, this gallant hero that was constantly saving the city. This is a very, like, Alan Moore move. This, like... He... Where instead of just erasing a character's history to give a new take on them, he's all about reframing it. We see that with Swamp Thing, where he reframes all the old Swamp Thing stories... By using this idea that, like, oh, he was never actually Alec Holland. All those stories happened, but they just weren't quite what we thought they were. Like, one of his earliest uh, works that he got acclaimed for was a Miracle Man, slash, or Marvel Man, as it was originally called. Which was where he took over kind of a, a character that was supposed to be sort of like Captain Marvel Shazam for England. And he reframed all of those characters' old stories as like simulations that have been created to keep him in check. And that there was actually something more sinister going on. And he was being manipulated uh, by those stories. And it feels like he's sort of subtly hinting at a thing for that with Adam Strange.
1: So are you saying that the Zeta Beam is not... Because it's implied that the Zeta Beam is random and he can't control it. Are you saying that the Zeta Beam is not random and someone is controlling it to send him
0: back? That seems to be the implication here. Because he he kind of brings up the idea that, like, the Zeta Beam is written doesn't really make a ton of sense. But it seems, maybe makes more sense if there's a hand at the helm controlling it.
1: The thing that kind of confuses me about the situation is it seems out of character for Alan Moore to love a character that is just aesthetically beautiful and serves the purpose of procreation. He seems to like the weirder darker characters Adam Strange seems like a nice wholesome character.
0: I don't know if I mean yeah, but I think like I said I think he's like scruffing him up in this. He's making him more of like a like a, you know, almost like a like an Arthur Denty sort of like anti-hero guy, not in the like brooding mean version of an anti-hero but like a classical sort of anti-hero i mean i don't know i don't know if he was like planning to write an adam strange story or something but i think once he put one thing in space it was a natural fit to have adam strange there and he kind of just sort of worked his alan moore magic on him
1: see i thought he picked him because he was kind of weird and out of fashion yeah
0: well i'm sure that was yeah. it too
1: so do the thargaryen ever attack earth yeah okay so that is a a legitimate plot point yeah there's a big
0: storyline where they they do it um i've never read it it's called invasion with an exclamation mark at the end of it why Uh, would but i've read the
1: i much bigger than the rest of the
0: letters i don't know i'm sure it is (laughs) i've never actually read that story i've just read like tie-ins with other comics like the graham morrison animal man run has an issue where he fights a thanagarian invader so yeah, I don't know if this was just a um a plot thread that Moore threw out that editorial picked up on, or if this was supposed to be a deliberate lead into that story. Uh, but this one definitely does pale.
1: Yeah, I mean that kind of is like a standard action space golden age story, and then the next issue, which is fifty nine, is completely weird.
0: <laughs> the rest of this uh volume is completely weird. The the one where <laughs> Swamp Thing is fighting uh, militant hawk people on a barren planet is the least weird story in this volume.
1: Well, he's actually a red cactus monster. Yeah. So then this story switches back, and this really has less to do with Swamp Thing and more to do with Abby. Yeah, this is
0: an Abby-centric story. It's called Reunion. (laughs) Uh, Bissett's back. uh, Oh, this is actually written by Bissett and not Alan Moore. Uh, but it's drawn by Rick Veach and inked by Alcala. This is interesting. I didn't realize, this is feels very Alan Moore. I mean, like, it is in line with some of the other stories he's, he's told. It has almost the same structure as, like, the Nuke Face papers or the Boogeyman one, where we're cutting back to this other character who has this kind of fractured perspective. And uh, this is all about Abby's relationship with her father. So her dad, uh, Grigory Arcane, is a character from the earlier uh, Swamp Thing stories, and we've seen hints of him here and there, references to the Patrick Man. He's shown up in Swamp Thing's visions. He shows up when that um, what's his name, Hugo, the the jerk, eats the uh, sweet right. potato in the first Chester story. He's at one point hallucinates like a cop, I think, as the Patrick Man. And so what. We find out in this, but, but the story is that Grigori was like this loving father, kind of a, a, an able to Anton's Arca- Anton's cane, and uh, he in order to—he sees some poachers on his land, and he chases them off, but they run towards this deactivated minefield because, you know, like they're in Eastern Europe. And he tries to save their lives, even though they're poachers, because he's a noble man— And he steps onto the minefield himself and is exploded. And then put back together as this shambling Frankenstein by his brother and doomed to this tortured existence. And he finds the... Like a newspaper article about Abby. And learns that she's alive. And she's in America. And I guess he swims across the ocean? He definitely, like... There's this sort of framing device where we see these weird twisted up we see these weird twisted up versions of his memories where he's hanging out with his daughter and he's reading her Frankenstein and I think they're clearly supposed to like that's supposed to be a modified memory. She probably wasn't actually in love with the Frankenstein story when she was a kid, but he sees the connection between the Frankenstein story and his own story and fills it into his memory. And at one point they start writing a new ending for Frankenstein, that clearly reflects what's happening with him, and that involves the monster swimming across the ocean. So I guess he swam across the ocean.
1: Well, let's start with the best part. The whole thing opens
0: with this, like, sports
1: theme that's going on in hell. Yeah,
0: so we get the couple cut back. Well, it, the framing device is Anton's in hell. His head is being used as, like, a soccer ball or something.
1: Some kind of weird demon sport. With an exclamation point at the end,
0: and then at one point, in order to further torture him, the demon starts bringing up his brother because he's like, "Oh, you haven't even repented for the stuff you did before you're three, and oh, we haven't even gotten to when your brother is born and what you the awful things you do to him." And he's like, "My my brother," because he's like all fucked up, and he's like, "Yeah, let me show you what's up with your brother." And so this comic is framed as sort of being the vision that Anton sees in hell. Of what's going on with his brother's last moments.
1: And I think it's kind of like... It is sort of inspired by the Frankenstein story. but Especially the parts that are about Frankenstein's monster. Yeah. Because, I mean, you see the patchwork man. And you see him on this... I guess what happens is when... he, When Anton Arcane is sent to hell... Mm -hmm. In the previous issues... He fre- it frees his brother from whatever sort of prison he was in, and now he's able to look for his daughter, which is why there's a there's this sort of gap of time between the time when Anton Arcane gets sent to hell and the brother shows up. But mm-hmm. so he's on this sort of journey to, and he's confused mm-hmm. in his mind. And you'll see like where he's having these sort of throwbacks, where he's reading the story to his daughter, but then when they show him in real time. He's this hideous monster and he has this sort of doll that is like a replacement for his daughter which is really sad.
0: Yeah. So I mean this whole thing is like I think it's it's a metaphor for for dealing with like a loved one having a terminal illness. Like this is isn't re- this is a story about uh, this is the story about Abby's father dying even though he's kind of already dad
1: i think it's clear that his memory is sort of either distorted or enhanced because in the beginning when he first sees the abby she has blonde hair and she's a beautiful little girl and then as his memories progress she's the same girl but she has gray hair which is the hair that she has now Mm -hmm. so then you realize that he's sort of modifying the memories to fit into the picture of what he has because he has the newspaper that he carries with him and then she starts to feel a connection to him she starts dreaming about him and then she has this overwhelming desire to go to the swamp yeah but in the meantime you see her working her new job It's the opposite of working at the child's home now she works at a at a senior citizen's facility with this sort of corrupt angry man who is who is abusing the patients
0: yeah he's a thief he's he's abusive and he sort of flies under the radar of the of the woman that's in charge and abby has this um connection with this uh this older german man who reminds her of his her father who lives at the uh retirement home and he like repairs watches and clocks and he you know he's his family comes to visit him but his daughter won't come and there's this like clear like father-daughter thing going on and uh eventually abby confronts that dude The right know, because guy. one
1: of the patients ends up dying and then the
0: well she at least has a stroke i know she's dead but
1: but anyway, one of the paramedics noticed that she has broken fingers.
0: Yeah, because he was stealing her ring. Because he was
1: stealing ring. And then he tries to steal something from the the other resident who has the weird name of, like, clock. His last name is Clockwork. And he... Clock? Town Clock or something? Town like? Clock. And he fit, that kind of was, like, a lazy...
0: Yeah, well, you know, it's... it's That's primarily They had
1: a staff meeting and they had to make some kind Mm -hmm. of compromise so this is what they came up with.
0: But yeah, he's fixing the manager of the retirement home's watch and Gator comes into his room and tries to take it and this town clock slams his hand in the drawer and that's how Abby catches him stealing. I think he also punches town clock or something like that. And that leads to the confrontation where Abby calls him out and exposes him for being a thief and gets him fired from his job. Um... You know, and this is another instance of, like, Abby standing up to you, someone who's, like, abusive. We're sort of similar to what we saw with her and uh, Barclay. And weirdly enough, this guy's name is Gator. And she got Barclay <laughs> fed to the gators. I don't know, there's exactly. something there. Uh, and then Chester shows up.
1: Yeah, and she's like, I gotta get out of here. My headspace is just so compacted. I gotta get to the swamp.
0: Uh, so we find out she's been living with Liz and taking care of her. And Chester, she's been working with Chester, the environmental group. And Chester's been keeping an eye out for sightings of the Swamp Man. And he's found one in Texas. And so they head out to Texas to check out this Swamp Man sighting in hopes that it will be Swamp Thing.
1: Right, um, but it turns out to be her father. Yeah. And they have an interaction. And it's kind of sad.
0: It's pretty It's pretty sad. Um he gets destroyed by a hailstorm and dies and she uh she has her sort of moment of uh mourning the, for him. Yeah, her.
1: her closure from the father. Yeah. And I think this I mean, this kind of really puts the whole arcane portion of the story to rest. Yeah. I mean she's had that resolution. Well yeah,
0: she's dealt she's dealt with her uncle, like he came back from hell. And got sent to hell again, and then she went to hell and saw him there in his forever punishment. And now she is come her father is finally laid to rest for good and she got to have a last moment with him. Even though it is like bittersweet and she wishes there was more. And then we get a last little bit of Arcane in Hell, where it seems like he he's having this realization, like, Oh my god, I I, I hurt her. The demon's like, oh, look at how, ba- how badly you hurt her. Look, look at the- what you did, all this misery you caused. And he's like, I hurt her? And then he just starts cackling maniacally.
1: Yeah, and then it turns out that if he keeps up the good work and he pays his debt to hell, he himself could become, a you know, a demon that could Fort- have some kind of demonic redemption. But I don't know if that ever
0: happens. Well, I don't, I don't know if that ever happens either. But yeah, I mean, it makes sense. He's just pure evil.
1: Yeah, so then you think that's weird, and then you get to the next one, which is completely different. The artwork is different, the sort of mechanics of how a Swamp Thing exists is different, and it kind of, it's weird, but it also sets up what happens in the, I mean, you can't finish out the story without having this portion. And yeah. This is the kind of like, this is the cringeworthy issue that, poor nate being extremely woke will have a problem dealing with
0: uh yeah so this is kind of a notorious issue it's called loving the alien moore's back writing and tuttlebin is back on the art and he john tuttlebins all over this comic like he goes into overdrive he pushes the pedal straight through to the asphalt on this one uh it's very um non-traditional there's almost no panels it's pretty much entirely these uh, single page splashes. There's, it's very non traditional comics art. It's like a lot of uh, collage, a lot of like printing techniques. It
1: was interesting because when it's I was very zine looking,
0: sort of aesthetic. Yeah,
1: well, there, yes, it definitely has a zine. It, it's very um, much like in like this cyberpunk aesthetic and it really does have that sort of late 80s zine look and big geiger
0: influence yeah
1: and i think like and the colors are kind of like blues and grays and blacks kind of very um industrial looking very mechanical but i think a lot a lot of times even when it's where it's listed instead of saying artwork it says production yeah so like somebody made this it was like mechanically made it wasn't organic or drawn
0: well there's a lot of mixed media going yeah. on here uh so this is basically the um the story of the virgin mary in space with swamp thing i don't know how to describe this so there's this enormous biomechanical
1: technus that's her name technus, technus. is that her name given in the issue at any point I, I don't know
0: so there's it's she, I always called refer to her as the island right uh she's this enormous biomechanical, partially floral, partially animal partially fungus being free-floating in space and Look, they're looking for a mate they she's sort of like a um like an angler fish so the females are these enormous. Incredibly powerful, or essentially, or bioorganic space stations, and the males are these sort of free-floating, like sperm type things, and they fly through space, and eventually two of them meet, and they mate, and then the female shoots out her pods into space, and the whole cycle completes over and over again. And she, Technus, is lonely. And desperate for a mate, and she fears that perhaps her species has been wiped out or died off. And there are no more like her to fulfill her need. And she intercepts Swamp Thing, or Swamp Thing's signature, like, bumps into her by accident. And he creates a body from parts of her. And she's intrigued by his existence because he's utterly alien, but he's made this body from her. So he's kind of this fusion of the familiar and the unfamiliar. And this is erotically exciting to her. And so she attempts to... He is freaked out and tries to escape from her. And she uses her powers to entrap him and then mate with him against his will. It is literally... Uh, so. Will trigger warning, I guess, for sexual assault. Because what she does to him is horrific it's like this full-on Geiger thing where she like vivisects him in order to mate with him she in her it's entirely narrated from her perspective and she identifies what she does to him as rape and then she he she lets him leave and she gives birth to these new beings that are half swamp thing and half her she constantly refers to him as the ghost. And the ghost that slam, swam through clockwork because she identifies him as like the mind, not the the body that he was inhabiting. And it's like I said, it's this weird Christ the birth of Christ thing where like she's this the virgin visited by the ghost and and gives birth to this new being that, that's half mundane and half a god. I mean Swamp Thing is kind of a a god. Uh I don't know what the deal with this issue is. I find this issue very confusing. I think it's really interesting and exciting from an artistic perspective, but I don't know what it's saying about anything, really.
1: Well, I think, first of all, I think it really does kind of... um, I mean, at the time this was written in the late 80s, it is sort of the rise of cyberpunk, and -hmm. I think it sort of embraces the aesthetic of that. I think it's interesting because... He unable to find enough biological material. He starts to harvest like non biological material. Like there's a part in there where she says part of him is made from the parts of her body that are sort of like the the areas where you know on a spaceship they would grow food Mm -hmm. or they would have some kind of like filtering system that was made from like algae and he takes part of that from her she's also telling the story in the future to her offspring which are now this hybrid of machine and and plant
0: yeah uh, i don't think this has ever followed up on i don't know if we ever see swamp things alien offspring again uh Yeah, and there's a lot of, like, like I said, the whole thing is, from her perspective, like, there, some of it almost reads as this, like, erotica from another dimension.
1: Yeah, there's definitely, but I mean, I understand, and I agree that there is, like, a trigger warning that there is a violent sexual act,
0: but. It's very divorced from the imagery of a tradition, like, of a human, like, it is like a, they're, they're machines,
1: but what I was going to say is it it seems almost less of, like, a sexual act and more of, like, a harvesting. Sure. Because, I mean, at the, the point where she, she's almost, like, dissecting this space swamp thing that's half plant, half hardware. And then it kind of, like, she's opening up, like, this sort of alien autopsy. And she's probing him with a very specifically labeled platinum probe. I don't know why it has to be maybe platinum. It it implies that it's like fancy. I don't know. But she's kind of like, she opens him up and she's looking inside, Mm -hmm. taking the parts that she wants. And it's interesting to me that she is an entity that's more machine, but she's looking for the organic parts of Swamp Thing to, to... mate with to make her children yeah
0: but i mean divorced of the narration yeah it reads like a harvesting but her narration of it is like like i said it's like really erotic and she's talking about like how she's doing this out of some sense of love and it's very creepy and she feels this like intense longing and infatuation with swamp thing which juxtaposed with the like harsh mechanical reality of the imagery creates this real sense of like unease which i think is intentional
1: i think it's true but i think it also it kind of shows it's like the flip side i don't even know if i I can articulate this in a way that sort of makes welcome to the club but it's like all along the whole series swamp thing you know indiscriminately like Makes himself from other parts. And he never sees anything wrong with that. Yeah. And now we're coming to the part where this... Where he make he, he, in a way, almost... Not to defend what she does. But he, in a way, almost violates her. Yeah. By taking parts of her body to make his own. And then she kind of says, Well, he's making a body from me. Let me look at this body that he makes. But, like... Like, the next issue, especially, it it makes you think,
0: like, what happens if the
1: plant matter that Swamp Thing is making himself from doesn't want to be made into Swamp Thing? Yeah, I think
0: this, this is, there's a couple things going on here. Yeah, I think from her perspective, this is an exchange. He created his body from her and that was an act of intimacy where he took something from her. And now she's doing the same thing back. But from his perspective, it's totally skewed. It's not – that's not what's going on at all. And in a way, this is a uh, portrait of the need for enthusiastic consent. Right. Um, and I think also what's happening here is, like you said, it's foreshadowing of this idea that like, Swamp Thing can make himself out of the plant matter that might be sentient – And the idea of, like, well, what does that mean? What happens when he connects minds together the way that he connects random bits of plant? And, like, yeah, I think it's exploring the morality of the thing that Swamp Thing does constantly, unconsciously, with his body. And the way that he kind of sees all plant life as an extension of himself.
1: But I think we need to go back to the fact to remember that Swamp Thing is a horror comic. Yeah. And because it's a horror comic and it's taking place in the in the pre-technology world of the late 1980s. <laughs> pre-technology? That it is... Pre-internet. Pre-internet, pre-dependence, pre-social media. It's tapping into, which is very common for horror, to tap into... And science fiction, because this is very sci-fi. Mm-hmm. To tap into something that... Fear, a societal fear that is taking place in the current environment and turning that into a horror story. And that's what this is doing. It is taking the the cultural fear of the dependence on technology and the fear of the unknown about what will happen to that technology to society Mm -hmm. and what will happen to the people who are now dependent on technology and puts it in this. Because we have a creature that's massive, sentient, technology-based that is kind of going through the the universe, taking what it wants. And then it finds Swamp Thing and then it takes the biological, the organic, the sentient part of Swamp Thing and tears it out. And then just takes that and melds it with itself. So that's like, that's very cyberpunk, but that's also very classic horror because now... People are afraid of technology. You know, like mm-hmm. William Gibson's gonna make his career from that fear. Sure. And then here here Al Moore is saying, you know, this is this could happen.
0: Yeah. I think also They're not
1: all nice golden age space monsters that I'm gonna fight. <laughs> you know, there's there's a real like horror out there, just like the movie like Alien, like that horror.
0: Yeah, I think also you know this existing like you said existing contrast to the more reasonable relatable aliens that we meet on ran uh i also think that this uh this whole story of swamp things or journey home it's an exploration of the concept of love and all the facets of it good and bad and we see this you know we see the the thing with adam strange and alana and the way their love is, you know, constantly thwarted and the way that the absence of it can sort of torture Adam. We also see the way that their love can be used as a tool to manipulate them, to get them to do things that are sort of against their will. And here we see love as like a justification for an act of horror and the way it can sort of distort someone's perspective and create these kind of parallel realities where you can do something horrible and think you're doing something beautiful Because love has blinded you in a way... Which is what happens with the the island.
1: Well I think it's kind of like a reflection... Like you said on Swamp Thing and Abby's relationship. Because Mm. in their minds together... They have a relationship of equals. They're both consenting to be in this relationship. And Swamp Thing is respectful of Abby's feelings. And she's respectful of his. But to the outside world... It looks like Swamp Thing is a monster... That is preying on Abby. Yeah. You know, that's the whole thing. Like a horrible swamp monster and this beautiful, innocent lady. And it's kind of like... that's. This is almost a comment on that. I mean, this is like... Swamp Thing is nice and lovable. And he's an elemental and he cares. And he just came from a planet where he was helping them. Now he's being like... Raped. Mechanically raped with a platinum probe by this giant horrible space monster
0: yeah uh do we have anything else to say about loving the alien it's um
1: i mean visually it's stunning i mean i love the artwork i like that you said it sort of has this very 80s post-industrial like zine feel it's very dramatic the artwork is very interesting the page layouts are kind of like provocative like you said there I mean the whole swamp thing series uses these sort of non traditional panel layouts and this sort of just says like there's no panel this this is just itself it's mm-hmm. almost like like it's a capsule issue mm-hmm. but then you go on to the next issue which is all flesh is grass and that has this is my favorite cover from the the whole series this issue 61 where he's sort of <laughs> He looks very like primitive and he's like screaming and his eyes are mouths just like the Corinthians and they're screaming and he's, and he's got the sort of, you see his finger and he's got the like green lantern.
0: Yes. So like I said, the previous issue, it does the setup of like, here's where we're introducing the idea of like how does Swamp Thing interact with sentient biomatter that he can manipulate and this is the big payoff to that, in a horrific fashion. And, you know, this is also the twisting of, like, the previous issue. Swamp Thing is is brutalized and terrorized by this massive being. And now he is unwittingly doing the same thing to other beings. So.
1: So he shows up on the planet. They have, like, a little prelude about the planet where you learn that they're, like, Sentient plant based. They have a Green Lantern who lives on their planet.
0: The Great Medfil, right? He's 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 aging, and his mentor. It, it's, it seems like he's like almost like um like a Buddhist or something. Yeah, like he has this like teacher who, who's sort of monk like named Jothra that he has this like spiritual relationship with, and Jothra has died, and Medfil is. Not the kind of his problem is he's not really in mourning. doesn't really understand what to do or how to move forward. And a lot of this issue is about the people on this plant planet. So we get introduced to a couple who and are... And it seems
1: like the planet, the people are pretty chill. Yeah. Like they're not used to a lot of like...
0: Conflict. Conflict. Yeah, I mean medfill is a much more... It seems like a much more active protector than the earth green lanterns he's kind of a superman figure to these people i think more than the earth green lanterns are to earth and um so i mean this is basically a disaster story initially it has the structure of like a 70s disaster movie where we get introduced to a bunch of different people then the disaster happens and we see how they all react to it
1: yeah and then i guess at some point Swamp Thing connects to the... He, he starts to make himself a body out of the plant matter and he doesn't realize that what he's actually doing is the plant matter he's using are these sentient plant people that live on the planet and then he grows to an enormous size because he absorbs too many and then he realizes that, that he is creating his body from sentient plant matter and he senses all of those... All the minds of the people that he has absorbed. And, and then the- you kind of get this impression from the town that they're sort of, they've depended on the Green Lantern for so long that they don't really know how to defend themselves. So you sort of see this, like, army shows up and they're usually, they look like they're, like, maybe they're part-time army or whatever. Yeah. And they're not really used to dealing with, like, disasters or anything. So they don't really know how to react. And then... There's a lot of criticism about the current Green Lantern. I think he's
0: too old. One yes. ring too many is what they say about yes. him.
1: And then I guess they expect him to come back and fight the plant monster that is killing their planet. And then he decides he's going to reason with him. Using is... the power of the green. This is the question I have before we get into it. Like, just set aside anything about the Green Lantern. The Green Lantern uses a green light. And he can, he's a plant being that connects to another plant being. Is he harnessing the green?
0: I think he is, but he doesn't think of it in those terms. Okay. Because he says they have these techniques on this planet. They're almost like meditation techniques to alter your your biorhythm. And so I think he, he's doing it without having the same terminology as Swamp Thing does, but they're speaking in the same language. Uh, I really like Medfell. He's really, like, in a very short amount of time in this issue... Alan Moore established him as like a really interesting character. He's very like thoughtful and introspective, and he sort of got all these sort of struggles with his age and his confidence. There's this cool sequence where he, when he shows up to deal with Swamp Thing, who is essentially a this horrifying like Clive Barker y image of this like gestalt being, this giant made out of squirming people who are all fused together in this really grotesque way. And there's this cool sequence where Medfield shows up to fight him and we get these – it's a series of panels where it's his hand outstretched with the ring and then a tactic that he employs that goes horribly wrong. And we – he like – first he blasts him and he ends up accidentally killing a bunch of people. Then he tries to surgically separate him and he does uh, more – he tries to shackle him and he ends up killing a bunch of people. And he tries to surgically separate him and that goes wrong too. And then we get to the end of the page and realize none of these things happened. And this was all just Metaphil's thought process, and we mm-hmm. see him as this very deliberate, thoughtful, he- philosophical kind of hero. And then he comes up with this idea to use the light to communicate with, and almost sort of like hypnotize Swamp Thing in order to calm him down and gently separate all the beings that Swamp Thing has absorbed.
1: So we know we know outside of the Swamp Thing that there are multiple Green Lanterns. Yeah. Do the other Green Lanterns, are they aware that there are other Green Lanterns? Mm -hmm. Okay, so he's like in the core of Green Lanterns, just like...
0: Yeah, this is a character that he's shown up before in... I don't think he's ever gotten this level of characterization, but he's shown up before in Green Lantern comics. And part of his turmoil that he's going through is the, um, the political problems that are happening with the green lantern Corps at large and the guardians of the universe who are the green lantern's bosses who are just constant space assholes just the biggest pricks in the universe and i think at this time they're like they're going away this is i think the lead up to millennium maybe i think is the name of that story i forget what it's called where they try to pick like new guardians that doesn't really matter in this but like The leadership of the Green Lantern Corps is in question, and he's questioning his place in the Corps, and the Corps' place in the universe, and he's in mourning, and people think he's too old. He's got a lot of shit going on.
1: Now, these—so he creates this sort of seven kind of motifs— that are wavelengths that yeah. he creates to communicate with the Swamp Thing. Are these things that are important in other parts of the Green Lantern story? Mm, no, not really. Okay, because they keep reappearing. They're kind of like these like psychedelic op art symbols that he projects to this.
0: Well, we find out, we'll find out what they are yeah. later, uh, which I think is really cool. But so he peels away all of the physical material Swamp Thing has made himself out of and and flays him essentially to his soul. Right. And traps it in like a bell jar. And then he and Swamp Thing begin to communicate and he comes up with this idea that he can tutor Swamp Thing on how to manipulate his uh, signature, his uh, frequency. And in order to do that safely, he Invites something to inhabit the corpse of his mentor, which allows him to get this sort of last uh, closure. I think also these, I just thought about it now. I think the, a lot of these stories are sort of jumping through the different kinds of love in, in like a Greek sense, because we get with Alana and Strange a romantic love, you get a purely physical and erotic thing. With the island, and now we're getting this sort of uh, love between a student and his mentor, this sort of fraternal friendship love with Jaffra and Medfell.
1: Also, I think you, I mean, at one point that there's a couple that are contemplating like getting married, whatever kind of plant sentient marriage they have together, and then when they're fused mm-hmm. into the body with swamp thing and they're spent they spend so much time close together in such a like a personal like mental space that when they're free they're kind of like maybe this is not for us so then they have like the sort of relationship awareness that inadvertently happens when they're combined to form swamp thing and then disassembled
0: yeah and so we get we get a bunch of different we have four characters that are, get caught up in the swamp thing stalled that we explore with there so there's this couple that have this illusion of intimacy between them. And they, when they are connected to, uh, together and forced to see each other unvarnished and to see each other's perceptions of each other, they come to realize that they're incompatible and their relationship isn't going to work. And then we have this suicidal priest who has completely lost his faith. And he experiences in this connection with everyone a renewal of his faith. And he has like essentially a meeting with, with God. Because in a way, Swamp Thing kind of is a god of plants and he when he's put to the test, he offers guidance to these other souls that are trapped in the in the swamp thing to stall. And then we have this uh artist who essentially gets to once connected to everyone and, and her position in this community is revealed to her fully, she sort of comes to realize just how small she is and it gives her a new found perspective and sort of reignites her creative passions. Right. And so, in a way, even though it's horrible, so I'm thinking by sort of making this unwitting, like, super community where everyone is more connected than possible, kind of does a good thing.
1: Yeah. It's just
0: like he does it in a bad way without realizing.
1: But then also, I mean, with Meg Phil, he gets the opportunity to work through, like, the same way that Abby worked through her issues with her father. Having Swamp Thing inhabit the body of his mentor gives him the time that he needs to say goodbye
0: mm-hmm. to
1: their relationship. And then at the end, when Swamp Thing realizes, when Swamp Thing has learned how to manipulate his bio, bio field, and he's just like, "I'm out of here," and he just zips out of that well, body. He thanks and moves, him, yes. But then he's like, "Now my, I got to move on. My journey is like, yeah, pushing me forward."
0: And um, there's also kind of a thing about like aging here where it's like Jofra is Medfield's teacher. And then when Swamp Thing inhabits him, now he becomes the teacher. And it's kind of this thing of like your parents take care of you. You take care of them. And then they're gone.
1: I also think it has a lot to do with like the concept of mentoring. Mm-hmm. So he was mentored. And there comes a point in the mentor relationship where you have to feel confident to move on from being the mentor e and then moving into your own and becoming that way. And I think the the sort of anxiety that Mentorful had was like when he was questioning what people thought of him as becoming the Green Lantern and taking care of the planet. Once he got the opportunity to work through his issues of mentoring with Swamp Thing, he was confident now to do what he needed to do. And then also Swamp Thing was confident to do what he needed to do. And then he jets off to another adventure. Mm. And then the issue ends with Adam Strange showing up <laughs> and saying, like, this is when he says, like, oh, Swamp Thing said to tell you he's alive. And he's he's on this sort of existential um, journey through space to realign his biofield.
0: To realign his chakras
1: she's shocked. is that what the seven symbols are well
0: we see i don't think it's it's not in this issue but w- what i was hinting at is we see an image at one point of swamp so we get this recurring imagery of what swan thing's soul looks like these right. like circles of light the um arranged in a in a vertical line and then we see an image of that superimposed on his body when he returns to earth and it becomes clear that there are the chakras right and so, so it's like there's this Implication We'll get into in this next issue of this, like, Swamp Thing's ability to connect with the Green is, like, a... It's a broader thing than it initially seems. Yeah.
1: So she naturally doesn't believe him. and the, Or also she's slightly mad at Swamp Thing and she tells him, you know, get, it's, get it's out a, of here. And then Chester <laughs> tries to say, like, oh, it she's upset but you know thanks for the message buddy.
0: well he's like i don't know what's wrong i teleport between this i you know i sometimes i just blink my eyes and i'm on this other world and chester's like yeah man i've been there before too buddy (laughs) uh it's a lot like the brand thing at the funeral i think it's a pretty funny gag because like why would she believe this random dude but also you're in the dc universe why wouldn't there be a
1: But those seven symbols become very important later in the next issue. And you see, like, recurring manifestations of them in different ways in the next issue. Oh, Which is
0: tellingly named Wavelength. Also, I just wanted to touch on... There's a lot of really neat world-building stuff in All Flesh is Grass where animals are like plants there. At one point, a character references... um, potted shrubs jothra is portrayed as being a compassionate and principled man because he only eats animals and doesn't eat any of the lesser plants right um i mean potted apes is what i meant to say i think i said potted shrubs which is not notable there are potted apes like potted plants and there's they walk through fields of ripe gila gila monsters at one point yeah and the all their buildings are these sentient banyan trees that are, like, these sort of guardians and protectors of them. And it's clear, like, their consciousness is slightly different than the other plant people's consciousness. So it's not, like, a burden to them to be, like, a building. And they sort of move and think slower. Sort of similar to how Swamp Thing interacts with the, um, the Parliament.
1: But it's kind of like someone said to Elmore, like, what do these plant people eat?
0: He's <laughs> like, they eat apples. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> yeah, I like that. It's just
0: like fun, goofy sci-fi stuff that I really liked. In, in, also in this issue, that's sort of this uh, poignant story about, like, death and our connections to each other. Yeah, so then we get to Wavelengths, which is the big Jack Kirby tribute issue.
1: I'm gonna let you talk about to, to give this sort of.
0: Uh, this is a weird one. They're all weird ones. This is a weird. Th- I this found is this a weird to be one. the
1: most confusing issue for some reason. So I didn't know who like a lot of these yeah, people I didn't think were.
0: about it. So, what's happening here is uh, this story is all about the new gods, Jack Kirby's the new gods. Uh, When Kirby left Marvel in the 70s, he came to DC, and they kind of gave him a little corner of the universe that he could create all his own. He came up with this idea, which he had originally come up with and was, I think, straight up told he couldn't do on Thor, which was this idea that, like, there'll be a big war, Ragnarok, essentially— And the old gods will die, and these new gods will show up. So the old gods, Thor, Hercules, all them, they're the gods of the third world. And now the gods of the fourth world are these, like, wacky space beings that we see in this. And Metron, the... the, well, no. So the whole thing with the new gods is there's this conflict between the evil gods of Apocalypse, led by Darkseid, who we see in this issue, and the good gods of New Genesis, led by Highfather, who we don't see in this issue, and then kind of a neutral participant in between them, is Metron, who is just this kind of um, amoral knowledge seeker who flies around in this super souped-up space chair called the Mobius (laughs) Chair, and he is obsessed with finding the secrets of the Source, which is like the Source from which all life and existence emanates, and it's hidden behind this uh, metaphysical barrier slash slightly semi-physical barrier called the Source Wall. And so we the story opens with Metron out in space near the source wall uh, examining these Promethean giants. These people that attempted to pierce the source wall and were enlarged and had their thought and bioprocesses slowed down to the point where they're basically titanic living statues in space. And these two people were like lovers who are forever separated. Again, bringing up these theme of, of thwarted love and... Metron is just kind of contemplating this whole scene and being really mean about these these tortured souls uh, when he picks up a signal from the mother box on the harness of one of the giants. And so the mother box, um, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, the fact that every time I turn on my Bluetooth speaker, it says, connected to mother box.
1: Right. Now we know where that came from.
0: So... The Mother Box... My phone is named Mother Box. That's what I'm saying here. Uh, The Mother Box is a Kirby concept. And it's one of those great Kirby concepts where he's just astonished by the way this dude's brain worked. Where, you know, he was writing these comics in the 70s. And personal computing was, like, really starting to be a thing. And computers are becoming more important. it's like, what does a computer use? It uses a motherboard, right? So, obviously, the next evolution would be a couple of those boards together. What what happens when you, when you connect a bunch of boards? You get a box, <laughs> a mother box, and the mother box is weird. I love it. It's like a semi mystical, benevolent personal supercomputer that provides like connection to the broader universe and like comfort and guidance to the people that use it, and it communicates with these ping-ping-ping-ping-ping sound effect that somehow people can interpret. The first thing we ever see a Mother Box do in the comics, I believe, is in an issue of Mr. Miracle, where it provides sort of comfort and its pinging provides sort of comfort and grace and closure to a dying man. So the the Mother Box is like kind of a mystical talisman, kind of a supercomputer, kind of a do-anything sci-fi machine. And... Um, Metron shrinks down this this mother box from this giant, and in doing so, uses up the last of his power source for his chair, the Element Axe, and it turns out what's happening is the mother box is connecting Metron and Swamp Thing, because Swamp Thing, part of his destiny is to help Metron pierce through to the source.
1: Is this the same source that they were fighting with John Constantine? possibly they only saw the hand they only saw one finger of a giant hand
0: possibly okay unclear probably sort of connected they're both they're both comic book concepts trying to to wrestle with the idea of god and the origin of the universe and like knowledge the, the source is kind of a combination of like god and nirvana in a way so in the logos
1: so swamp thing is at this point his consciousness is with the giant or is it in the box or is it a wavelength at the box the
0: box has called the consciousness to some plant life that has grown in this contained ecosystem that has evolved inside the giant's spacesuit. okay over the millennia that the giant has been stranded in space okay
1: so then metron he he does this he gets the box And then since he has no more power, Swamp Thing becomes his chair.
0: Yes. And so together, the Mother Box, Swamp Thing, and Metron ride through the substance of the universe to the source. And then they experience this sublime moment of understanding where they become aware of all points and times in the universe at once. And Metron has this sort of delirious moment of connection with all of these different beings and peoples and concepts. And Swamp Thing experiences something that makes him go crazy, uh, drives him mad. And then we get this cut to uh, after this story where it turns out that what's been happening is Metron's been relating this tale to Darkseid, the god of evil, in hopes of striking a Faustian bargain with him in order to receive more element x in order to continue his th- quest for knowledge throughout the universe and Darkseid is entirely motivated by this desire to learn and harness this concept called the anti-life equation which will allow him to destroy all free will at the universe because he's like the ultimate egotist he, he cannot abide by anyone having free will except for him. And the Anti-Life Equation will allow him to do it. So... And he sort of allows... He keeps Metron kind of on retainer on hopes that Metron will uncover some useful information that will allow him to get closer to the Anti-Life Equation. And Metron is unconcerned with morality, so he's willing to take help from Darkseid, even though it might lead to the universe being destroyed.
1: So Darkseid is almost like... They're DC's version of, like, Thanos.
0: Yeah, well, Thanos is kind of Marvel's version of Darkseid. Okay,
1: all right, (laughs) that makes sense. And then you got the seven symbols that are on Swamp Thing.
0: So Yeah, we see the seven symbols repeated, and Darkseid accesses the Mother Box to view what Swamp Thing saw. And what Swamp Thing saw was basically all of Abby's life at once. And,
1: but he's also seeing things that are, have that yet. have happened in the past, mm-hmm. things that are, cause I mean, he sees like the whole story of what happened to him and how he met Abby. And then he sees parts of her current life. He, see, he sees her at the nursing home and all this stuff. And then he sees the sort of, I don't know if it's a future version or because Things that happen later on that we know about in the series are projected here. Mm -hmm. Or are they That things that Swamp Thing is afraid might
0: happen? A lot of this is like a preview of what's going to happen in the Rick Veach run. So there's like her embracing John Constantine, which is like... There's going to be this whole weird thing in the Veach run where they have a child and Constantine is used as like a surrogate for Swamp Thing. And... Like, I think there's a reference to diving for pearls in this. And, like, the first issue of the Veach run is called We Could Be Diving for Pearls. Uh, there's, like, references to, like, gray stuff and, like, demands of the parliament, which are all all foreshadowing of that. So I, I think this this sequence was probably Veach and Moore working together to come up with this. But he kind of, like, the thing that drives him mad is, like, the pain of love, the pain of knowing, the, like, he, he experiences... All of that, all at once, hyper compressed into this single moment, and it, it rends his mind so badly that he, he had it, his memory had to be erased of this this moment essentially.
1: So that's what happens. He gets his memory erased, and he gets Metron gets his dark element as X element, which is just like a cube.
0: Yeah, just a space space <laughs> cube. It's on you know. It's just it's just a rare super element that he needs it's you know it's not that's when
1: he and then he has like this sort of interaction with the mother box himself and he says you know do you fear me and he doesn't understand
0: oh dark side yeah Yeah. talking to the mother box well yeah because the mother box is like the good it doesn't it understands that that dark side is evil uh and then it has
1: this weird kind of cornball thing where he was like i forgot the most important element it's love. Well, it's this like...
0: <laughs> it's driving home... Well, it's a Jack Kirby character. So they're not subtle. Their Subtlety is, is alien to Kirby. And, uh, yeah, but it's this idea that, like, you know, love can be painful. It can, can utterly and completely destroy you. and can subvert your free will. I mean, it's this idea that keeps coming up in this run of the, like, danger of love. And, like, yeah, if you're going to write a metaphysical... Story, pseudo mystical psychic reality bending equation to destroy free will love is probably a part of it yeah
1: well i thought this was really weird and i didn't understand it but the whole time i read it and i was like i'm sure nate digs this a lot
0: oh i love this story
1: but then when i was doing my research i found out that it was based on it was inspired by the short story elf by nate's
0: Best friend.
1: (laughs) Boris? Yes.
0: Yeah, because what... Oh, so... um, Metron is telling his story to Darkseid, and Darkseid's like, you weren't in the source. You were in a a Lef. Or an Elf, or however you're supposed to say it. I always thought it was a Lef. uh, Which is this, like, point... This thing that sorcerers can create. That's a point at which you can view all of the universe at once. And Darkseid dismisses that as being, you know, unremarkable and unimportant. And... That Metron didn't get it because Metron is focused on science. He doesn't know shit about magic. But yeah, it's like, well, I don't know. What is the source if not that? If it's not oneness with the universe. But, you know, Darkseid is is locked into his perspective because he's this evil dude who, who can't see beyond himself. So the idea of seeing everyone, that's not... Why would that be appealing to him? Nobody's really real except for Darkseid.
1: I'm just looking up how you pronounce that word.
0: Aleph. 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 Yeah, I guess because... Continuing
1: our mispronunciation of anything that has to do with Borges. Yeah. Bor- Borges. What What do we... We
0: call them Borges, or? but I'm pretty sure it's Borges. Borges. But yeah, I mean, I also think this is a little bit of Alan Moore getting at his personal philosophy about, like, magic. You know, Alan Moore is a practicing uh, chaos magician. But Yeah. I think this story's really cool. I and, mean, like, it's a fusion of Jack Kirby and Bores. It's kind of, like, made for me, and especially. And uh, this is sort of his last... one Thing's last stop before he gets home.
1: Yeah, so then the next issue, which is called 60... It's number 63. is called Loose Ends.
0: Reprise. Because the first issue of this was called Loose Ends.
1: Right. Reprise. And this is when we see... She, we see Abby, and she's visiting with... Matt and she's kind of saying her goodbyes again. Mm. And then there's a scene where Chester is looking for Abby, and he goes to talk to Liz, and he is kind to her, and he says that she's beautiful, and that sort of helps Liz recover a little bit and sets the sort of beginning of the relationship with Chester and Liz.
0: Yeah, and it's nice because it doesn't just... Him showing interest in her doesn't immediately... Fix her, but it does like it helps her confidence, and it's yeah. like a thing that kind of Abby can't give to her, right? And um, it's nice. And Chessner's is like super nice. He's like the nicest guy in the universe, and he goes to the hospital to meet up with Abby because uh, Liz tells her that's where tells him that's where she is, and he runs into Monroe,
1: right? And they have a conversation, and it turns out that his wife is dying Mm -hmm. and in fact he gives her the tuber and she ends up dying and then chester being very positive and upbeat encourages him to join their ecology group as a way to make amends for the things that he did when he was working with that toxic
0: company yeah it's another example of how nice chester is is that like he knows that monroe like monroe is his enemy he's a he's a, a suit he's a stuffed shirt that helped poison the environment but he's like willing to help him achieve this level of forgiveness which again really nice uh
1: but cut in between these sort of scenes of like (laughs) domestic tranquility you see you're back you know the swamp thing is back and he's still angry at being like fucked with in gotham because there's intercut within these scenes of like the homecoming with abby is him getting revenge plant-wise on the people that tried to kill him in Gotham. So you see like one of them is killed by um, this floral bouquet that starts to grow and, and encompass him and he ends up drowning in a hot tub. And then my favorite one is when he, you know, I forget his name, the, the general... He, so, mean the guy? Yeah, so he's afraid that like Wilcox, I think his name Wicker. is Wicker. He's so afraid of like the fact that like
0: Swamp Think's coming to kill him. Swamp
1: because so one is killed with flowers, the other one is killed with a plant a peach tree outside of his family home.
0: One of them's trapped in an inescapable uh hedge maze.
1: Hedge maze. So he's afraid and he has all the plant life removed from his compounds and He's hiding out, and then he gets a hamburger delivered. And it's too late after he starts to eat it, he realizes that there's lettuce on this. And then Swamp Thing just explodes his body into, and turns him into a giant human tree, which I think is like the greatest revenge.
0: Yeah, and so like... I mean, I think some of this is revenge. I think some of this is practicality. Like, these people are going to hunt them. They're not dealt with. He's not going to be safe and at peace with Abby. I also think... You know, Moore's having some fun with this. They bring up Oliver North. Mm -hmm. They talk about participating in, like, coups in South America. Like, these guys are like these sort of Reagan-era, nat-sex psychos that spread brutality throughout the world. And I think in the same way that a lot of V for Vendetta is Alan Moore getting to really work out some frustrations with Margaret Thatcher. This is him working out some frustration with Ronald Reagan and that administration and, like... Yeah, it's fun to see these these kinds of guys that, like, in real life would come to dominate politics for years, even up until now, and just really make a mess of the whole world. It's fun to see them get exploded and turned into trees and drowned by peach blossoms.
1: But I think it's sort of—it shows you the balance of Swamp Thing. Because, yes, he is having these horrifying revenge sequences (laughs) using his plant powers to destroy these evil men— but then there's also that tender moment where his tuber is being used to soften and to ease the death of a woman who isn't, in, in fact, her. The reason why she's dying is because of the things that these types of men do. She's exposed to toxic waste and she ends up having a terrible, painful death. So you see him like benchful,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, swamping, but also balanced by this comforting, natural. Um, good use of his plant elemental powers, which is to save this woman from dying a horrible death.
0: Yeah, I mean she dies. She dies in peace. She's she's her like last words to her husband are good night. He doesn't make it in time to be there when she dies, but she she still reaches out to him in her final moments. But he, I like really like this wrap up to the Monroe story.
1: But I think like he shouldn't have the right to be there.
0: No, he shouldn't because and it's he, his fault.
1: And also, in a lot of ways. By setting Chester and them together during the Gotham story, he's also helping him because he's using Chester, who is in touch with the environment, to make a way to make amends for him. So then they go into... She's like, I've had enough of this. i got to get out of my headspace. i got to go to the swamp. Mm. And her and Chester go, and Chester finds all these tubers lying around, and he says... These should be rotten. And she's kind of like oblivious. Like she's like, oh, okay, I don't know what's going on. And then all of a sudden, up, up, pop, swamp thing. And Chester jumps yeah. up and down and Abby's very happy. And we see this sort of, the swamp thing that we know and love, the green swamp thing with his red eyes. And he's growing out of the swamp. And that's just how the issue ends.
0: Yeah. Uh, I really, this is a really satisfying issue. Like it's a really good reunion we get a lot of things wrapped up like it wraps up the monroe story abby says goodbye to matt swamp thing deals with the loose ends of um you know the the dickheads that tried to kill him uh the dick weeds that tried to kill him (laughs) he prunes those weeds uh yeah it's it's it sets up it doesn't fully happen but it, it gives us a path towards a resolution of the liz story like with chester helping her kind of in the same way he helped Monroe, I mean, not the same way, but, like, like similarly. Like, right. he's this positive influence. Um, Chester's got a cool American Beauty shirt throughout this issue. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, he's, he's so, amazing. So
0: before we move on to the last issue, I do want to talk a little bit about um, the chakra thing. Okay. And what's happening in Wavelengths, I think. Which is this idea that, like, we're given this taste of a path that Swamp Thing could go down. Like, we know that he can... We've already seen him through the green. Access, like, heaven. And this, like, broader uh, mystical realm. And in this we see his soul portrayed... Not with imagery of plants, but with imagery of, like... You know... Like, like it's the chakra. It's, it's this thing that's in all of us. And so I think there's this idea that, like, Swamp Thing could branch out from just being a plant guy. His connection to life could broaden out to a connection with the entire universe he could become one with the whole world if he chose to explore that path but doing so like we see in a left would open him up to immeasurable suffering and would destroy swamp thing it would destroy the sense of self that he spent all of these issues building since he learned that he never was alec holland
1: i think that that sort of brought to fruition in the last issue because there's a scene in there where he grapples with the idea of using his elemental powers to end hunger on earth
0: yeah that's kind of the thing we were talking about with the gotham issue is like does he have this responsibility to do it and a lot of this issue is about that so i mean this is the final issue of this run it's the final issue uh in this collection it's called return of the good gumbo which, I really like that title. Uh, it's got a couple of different artists. Bissette's back. Tom Yeats does some. And Rick Veach does some. Uh, Alcala inks most of it. And Tom Yeats inks himself. Uh, I think Bissette also inks himself.
1: Yeah, and I think this also goes back to the sort of style that you expect from the Swamp thing. I mean, it's very organic. It's very natural looking. And you start to see that, like, of the many manifestations of Swamp Thing, he's back to his original sort of...
0: Well, we're back to springtime, Yeah.
1: Too. So it's kind of like...
0: So a lot of this issue is uh, built around the musings of... Uh, what is his name? Jean Labostre? Yes. Who's this uh, Creole guy. Jean uh, Labostre. Jean Think but I think it's supposed to be pronounced Jean, right? Jean. 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 Uh, he looks like Alan Moore. Of course I he does. I feel like I've... Don't quote me on this. Could be wrong. I don't have a source for this. But I think I read somewhere that in the original script, he didn't look like Alan Moore. And they the artist drew him to look like Alan Moore as like a little tribute.
1: So at this point, they know that this is Moore's last. Yeah, they know. So. They know.
0: I mean, Toddle I mean, Basette... T- not Bissette. Veach takes over the next issue. Like they, they, that was probably already written at this point. A lot of it was probably already written, which is how they ended up foreshadowing so much of it in wavelengths. I think. Uh, yeah, this is very obviously this is his send off. This is his final thesis statement on Swamp Thing. I think this issue is really, really beautiful. Very, I think, very moving. Uh, this, is a, this is a good. This is a good final issue of a, of a run. So uh, Labostre is like, he's piloting his boat through the bayou, he's musing on the state of the world, he feels this sort of sense of emptiness and melancholy. Change is coming. He 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 worries that his, his traditional way of life isn't really gonna survive. He's sort of concerned about increasing industrialization and commercialization and he just feels a little a little empty inside. And while all that is happening, Swamp Thing and Abby are, you know, having a day in the swamp together. Uh, Swamp Thing turns into a boat for her. Did well, you, he, you notice the shape of the boat?
1: He looks like a Loch Ness
0: Monster. It's a flatworm. Oh, is it? Yeah. It's got the flanges and the little mouthpiece. It's like, I think that's a, It's a obviously it's a callback to the beginning of the comic. Uh-huh. I think it's also him sort of like at peace. Like this flatworm was kind of an avatar for his discontent. It was the source of the revelation that, you know, made him root into the ground and now he's able to like take its form and acknowledge its existence in a way that you know doesn't torment them at all then he doesn't even comment on it
1: so they're having fun they're living they're in the swamp he's fighting an alligator yeah it's a
0: great sequence where he wrestles an alligator it rolls
1: he's sort of telling her a little bit about his adventures he tells her about Adam
0: Strange and he's like I don't want to bore you with my stories about space (laughs) Uh, but he's mostly reflecting on the thing that he did on Ran,
1: right? And I think that's where he's kind of coming to grips with. He's trying to decide what you know, because I think like him trying to solve world hunger is him embracing this sort of stereotype of like um, a superhero who's in service to humanity. So and he- I think that's a huge thing with DC. All of their superheroes are serving the needs of humanity and. Technically, sometimes humanity doesn't deserve to have these things.
0: Yeah, so he, he ponders this for a while. And what he basically, the conclusion he comes to is, is sort of what we were talking about. One, it's not his place to serve humanity. The, the natural world does not exist at the pleasure of humanity. And it's that thing you were talking about where you were like, oh, this like unrealistic thing on Ram where they're like, we're going to make the environment a better place. He realizes that if he just fixed the, the ecosystem people would just keep being as bad as they were if not worse because they would be reliant on him to fix it. Right. They need to solve the problem themselves or the problem is never actually going to get solved. I also think more doesn't really bring it up, but there's this this hint here of this idea where it's like the problem on ran was that it couldn't grow any food. We can grow food on earth, but it's unequally distributed. The problem isn't the planet. The problem is us. And Swamp Thing can't solve the problem of us. And he, he thinks back to, on the history of life on Earth and the history of the elementals. And he what sort of brings him to the conclusion that he, he shouldn't intervene and fix the world is that, like, the the earliest plant creatures, the original wood gods, didn't make the world a paradise for plants, even though they could have. They let life take its course and evolve. And he needs to do that, too. And he needs to take a step back. And then I think in a, this is him, in a way, coming to understand the perspective of the parliament.
1: Yeah, and I think and, this is a, this is a final sign of his maturity. This whole thing is, is a journey towards... I mean, he was kind of like an impulsive young swamp thing in the beginning of the series. <laughs> yeah. And he was punching things and just being like an asshole because he had so much chlorophyll he was so manly and now he's kind of tempered himself by going on this epic spiritual journey
0: but like when he meets the parliament there's this question of like how did they get like this why would these beings with all of this immense power and this ability to connect with the entire world and all of this shit why would they choose to isolate themselves and choose to go away into obscurity and isolation And not use their powers in the world at large. And the answer is because it would be wrong to do that.
1: Right. And I think it's like, that's how they were when he showed up. They're like, oh, he's so young and impulsive and blah, blah, blah. Turns out they were right. (laughs) Yeah. But nobody wants to hear that. That's the thing. Like, just like any other, same thing with the wise,
0: you know, the
1: Green Lantern story. He needs to come to that awareness on his own. And he does. So then he decides that he and Abby are going to take a break Mm. and he built her a swamp castle
0: yeah it's great it's just, he says uh oh, it looks better on the inside because <laughs> it's this like big weird plant thing there's a lot of great imagery in this issue like when he's reflecting back on the history of the world you get to see like the, the t-rex swamp thing again and it looks kind cool as shit
1: yeah yeah so that i mean it, it really is it's kind of like a perfect closure because it has references to everything so they build this swamp house and they decide to live there and then she goes to tell Chester and then she's like, oh no, I forgot about Liz.
0: Yeah, and Chester, Chester has brought Liz with her. He's he's coaxed her out of the so, house. Yeah, so
1: now she's out of the house and she's like beginning to function in society. And the even swamp thing was like, hey, maybe write a book. He's like. like your
0: book was good and I think you're very brave and you can write a book again. This got me really teared up when I was reading. I don't think I'm going to cry on the podcast. But- <laughs> Shakespeare style, like I did before, <laughs> but like this, his all of his interactions with with Liz and Chester and stuff got me really choked up, because uh, Chester is like he's so supportive. Her and Chester and Liz are so supportive of their decision to sort of make time for themselves and to go out into the swamp. And Chester, in a way, affirms Swamp Thing's decision because he's like he talks about like, oh, we're gonna take care of the environment, and I'm working with this group, and like, and Swamp Thing like expresses faith in Chester, and it's like, it's this genuinely beautiful moment, because Chester has so much faith in Swamp Thing, and in the world, and then his faith is returned by the the object of his worship, expression, faith, and pride in him. Like, that, that reduced me to tears.
1: Yeah, and I think it sort of validates... It's like self... It's like a circular validation between all of them. I like at the end, when they go back to the... Um, the man, what is his name?
0: Bo- Lobostra?
1: Lebostra. He runs into the photographer from the newspaper mm-hmm. and then he's like, you know, do you know where the swamp thing is? I want to get a picture. I heard he was back. And then he pretends like he does not understand what he's saying. <laughs> and then he's just like, fuck off. And he, he, just-
0: he chides him for only caring about money. Uh-huh. And then he sort of experiences his own sort of moment of oneness with the universe. And he... he you know, things come in cycles and, like, the good gumbo is back. Um,
1: but I think knowing that Swamp Thing is back in the swamp is sort of restoring some of that balance, that mm-hmm. that sort of ecological balance that he was manifesting. And then he kind of goes home and he's like, I'm just going to enjoy myself. And then Swamp Thing is like, we're also going to enjoy ourselves. And I mean, they, he, they just walk off into, like, the sunset, like a happy ending.
0: Yeah. What is his – he says something at the end – uh, The French thing he says at the end. Oh
1: God, you I, you do not want my Americanized French accent. Uh,
0: laissez le bon temps rouler, which means let the good times roll. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that's how you said it. I might have totally fucked that up too. I took two years of French, but I'm, I, I am, you know, I'm very rusty.
1: But I thought it was like, I thought it was a nice wrap up of Moore's run because it sort of put to bed a lot of things. The only thing it didn't put to bed was anything about Constantine. Well, he did mention saying, I'm not going to work for Constantine anymore. I don't want to deal with his He doesn't bullshit. want
0: to go on any more quests, any more missions. He's not here to fight anyone else. Constantine's going to get hundreds of issues to right. deal with his issues. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't bother me too much that there isn't a wrap-up. I wish him and... and Swamp Thing had had a, a, one last moment together. Does um, he ever
1: team back up? Yes, he does. Okay, so that's fine.
0: Yeah, he comes back later on in the, in the Veatch stuff, and they cross over in Hellblazer, and so, so they still they still know each other.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, overall, what did you think of this ish this volume?
0: I like this volume a lot. It's very weird, but I like the like focus on this exploration of love, and then it ends with this final sort of a reaffirmation of love and, like, we see the ways that love can be bad and harmful and then we get this sort of very moving picture of, like, this ode to the concept of love in a way and its place, you know, within the universe and in the world. And, uh yeah, no, I just, I really like this volume. It's, like, weird as Loving the Alien is, it's still an interesting experiment.
1: I thought so, too. I mean, I thought it was... I would not have expected someone like Al Moore to have a happy ending.
0: I think he's way more sentimental than people give him credit for. Because he has a reputation as being a curmudgeon. Which he is. Absolutely a curmudgeon. But a lot of his works are, are very sweet. And often very sentimental.
1: But I think it was nice... I mean, I think he starts to do a trend that happens very heavily in Sandman. Is he starts to bring the weirder parts of the DC universe together. And I think yeah. that that alone is a good legacy because he, he sort of leads the way and, and you can see the inspiration of that in later big epic storylines where they start to bring minor characters into. So I think that's a nice trend that he does. And I think he's also... He modernizes the sort of horror genre, mm-hmm. just like in comic books, but also you can start to see it like branching out in the late 80s, this horror, this rise in this more sophisticated horror style. And I think that's nice. And I think just like the avant-garde way that this, this is drawn and prepared and produced really makes this makes it very modern, makes it very adult- and it really reinforces the sort of beginnings of the, the use of a comic book, which morphs into like a graphic novel where the storytelling combination of really good writing and really good art put together can produce this sort of piece of literature that can be valued and not being considered sort of like ephemera or just like a transitory um, fun thing to read, you know, when, you know, when you're like you know, sitting at home, it's kind of, it's become a, it's, its own, almost a genre. It's like a more valued because of the work that Alan Moore does.
0: Yeah, I mean, he really makes this, this book is, it isn't just called Swamp Thing. It is it's about him. It is this full portrait of this guy and this evolution of this character where he starts in a completely different place and a completely different mindset than where he ends up with. And it's this very... Natural and believable progression through these issues.
1: I also think that it sort of validates the the concept that adults can read and enjoy and love comic books. It's yeah. like because you know, like in the forties, Biff, the 50s, Bang Pound
0: they ain't just for kids anymore. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> like it's a it's a sophisticated.
0: I mean, this was one of the first comics that I read that was like this this was, this was like really important to me I read, started reading this comic when I was in middle school and I think I, f- I was slowly buying the, issue, the volumes when I got the money to do so and I finished reading it I think in my freshman year of high school and it really like it's very important to me it really blew my mind uh, and opened up my perception of like what comics could do and the way that comics could handle you know these more complex stories than just like you know the joker is evil let's beat him up uh where this is really like a, an exploration of like the self and awareness this is you know it yeah it's just, it's it's really fucking good this is one of my favorite comics of all time uh and I'm glad that it holds up like honestly reading it again I was I was worried that parts of it were going to hold up worse than they did I think there's very little where I'm like there's some, sure. I think
1: there is less, believe it or not, cringeworthy things happening in Swamp Thing than happened in Sandman. Sandman yeah,
0: yeah. Sandman. No, I think that's true too. How do you? How do you? Um, how do you think this compares to Sandman? I don't necessarily want to make everything a fight between two works, but like they're they're held in a similar regard. They occupy kind of a similar place in comics history. They're both like very early vanguard vertigo comics i mean the first comic i think ever to have the vertigo banner is a later issue of swamp thing it doesn't have it until after this alan moore run uh but uh yeah how do you think they compare
1: i i mean i'm not a huge comic book fan I'm not, i mean i don't know i'm not
0: you're not as huge a comic book fan as right. i am so i'm
1: not like i'm not I kind of see it as like outside of like the, the comic book culture, and I mm-hmm. and I actually see them more as like works, like finite works of literature, and True. not connected. I mean, they are connected to these sort of um, events and like you know Infinite Earths and all these different things that are happening, but I kind of really see them as standalone works of art. Mm-hmm. And I think that the work that Alan Moore does sets. The sort of precedent that allows something like Sandman to happen. Yeah. And you see a lot of, like, Neil Gaiman taking a lot of the motifs and the, the, the tropes that Moore uses and putting them in Sandman, and then you start to see this sort of... I talk a lot about this in literature, this sort of, like, family tree of, like, literature, you know, like where one artist inspires another artist and that branches out and then you sort you see this sort of like giant tree of like influence and i feel like if there was a tree like that for comics ellen moore would be there and then you would see a direct branch branch out for sandman and then that would trickle down to other artists
0: that are working now yeah and i, I think it's interesting to compare them because they have very different philosophies towards their character arcs where so much of Sandman is about revealing and hinting at Morpheus's character and keeping this kind of what's so compelling about him. A lot of times is this sort of air of mystery and this uncertainty about exactly why he does some of the things that he does and this sort of ambiguity about like how intentional is some of this stuff that he did. Whereas, Swamp Thing, we know completely from the moment we see him. We're constantly in his head. We constantly have his internal monologue. And we chart this, like, gradual change. I mean, they both change a lot over the course of of their books. But for Swamp Thing, it's all right up front.
1: Yeah, I think also Swamp Thing is culturally connected to the 80s and salmon is kind of connected to the 90s. Sure, yeah. So, like, when you talk to people that are, like, my age and everyone's like, yeah, salmon, yeah, Constantine. Like, they know those characters mm-hmm. and they relate to them. And I think, like, the way that some people, the way that you're, I hate to be, like, your generation, but mm-hmm. the way that, like, your generation feels about Sandman, a lot of people feel that way about Swamp Thing.
0: hmm Yeah, I get that. Uh, so when this, we started reading this, I said that I thought that um, Abby and Swamp Thing, I said that was my favorite romance in all of fiction. Uh, well, now that we're at the end of it, how do you, how crazy does that statement sound now?
1: I don't, I think they are sort of iconic, they're an iconic couple and a lot of like the things that happen to them mimic a lot of what happens in the broader cultural literature mm-hmm. of like these star cross lovers these lovers that have um trials and tribulations, and I think they I think they really are sort of like an iconic couple because their mutual concern and their care for each other is sort of they have helped i mean despite the fact that he is a swamp <laughs> monster. And she is, like, a tragic... I mean, she has, like, a magnet for tragedy. They have, a, like, a healthy relationship. And yeah. I think that that is nice.
0: hmm And I like that they get a happy ending. Like, that's a... Re- comics have a lot of unhappy endings because it's easier to keep telling stories if your character is unhappy. And a lot of times, comics have to continue indefinitely. And I like that here we get a happy ending, even if it's not necessarily the ending like more stories get produced about these characters but this is very much an ending and it's a very uplifting
1: but i think a happy ending in itself is kind of like it's just a cliffhanger because every story that ends with a happy ending if you make a sequel you can continue a happy ending or you can cause like a catastrophic event to happen so that sort of Happy ending gives you the opportunity to take the story in a way, in any way that you want for the next thing.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, do we have anything else to say about Swamp Thing?
1: I'm sure we'll have plenty of things to say about Swamp Thing in the future. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, it it was a a weird, wild ride. I'm sure Mm -hmm. Chester would say that, Mm -hmm. Uh you know. What a strange trip it's been. Like, that's how, that's exactly how it was. But I'm glad that I had read it because I had, I don't know if I ever finished the saga because mm-hmm. I do remember reading parts of it. And and my clear memory sort of stopped at the moment when Swamp Thing and John Constantine had that story arc where they were fighting for the end of the world, and I okay. don't really remember a lot of what happened afterwards, mm-hmm. so I'm glad mm-hmm. I, I, I in my mind completed that series. So
0: yeah, that's also one of my favorite stuff happens after that storyline. So that's that's good that you you got to read that now.
1: Do you want to talk about like because I mean we're pretty much committed to the podcast being um, a novella or short story series, and then counter to that, the second episode of the month always being a comic book related
0: yeah I think that structure has worked really well for us I want to keep doing that I like reading comics I like talking about them uh, yeah so this is the end of October obviously you know that I mean if you're listening to this later this was this episode came out in an October and that <laughs> October is now over uh, and uh, so for the next month we're going to put a little bit of a uh, an end cap ...on our time with Vertigo for the time being. Uh, in the real world, Vertigo Comics is shuttered, uh, which is really disappointing. We'll talk about that more in a later episode. Uh, so we're going to read, for our next episode, we're going to read The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman, which is a novella that I think um, is sort of a Sandman story in disguise. And we'll talk about that. And then we're gonna after that, we're going to do Sandman Overture. And then that'll, that'll be our goodbye to Vertigo for a little while. We're going to keep reading comics we got something special happening in December that I'm not going to spoil yet. And then uh, after that, we might immediately start a new series. We might do a couple one-offs. But we're going to take a little break from uh, British writers from the 80s for a while.
1: Oh, that's all right.
0: I mean, I don't know. Maybe not entirely. But we're going to take a break from Vertigo Comics, at least for a bit. We're definitely going to get back to it. I love Vertigo Comics. So many of my favorite comics came out of this public out of this uh, imprint. And so we're definitely gonna do stuff like Why the Last Man and Doom Patrol and the Invisibles and et cetera, et cetera. But we're gonna take a little bit of break before that.
1: Well can I just say two things related to Swamp Thing that I think would be very helpful. Um Tor has an Alan Moore read along mm-hmm. which talks a lot about Swamp Thing. And one of the things that I found very helpful as a person who is not quite involved in the comic book overarching was the DC, they have like a Wikipedia type of thing where they go through all of the different, um, sagas and you can read about like what happens during the saga, but then you can also click through and get the backstories of some of the characters, which was very helpful for me. So... So I enjoy that, and they're both available on the
0: on the internet. I'll put, I'll put links What is to... the DC? That's uh the DC Wiki. What is it called? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Give me a second. I'll check. Yeah, it's pretty robust. I mean, that's a good thing about obsessive comic fans, is they're, uh
1: Yeah, I found there was more information on that than reading the Wikipedia because the Wikipedia is sort of just sort of. Um.
0: It's the DC database. It's dc.fandom.com. Yes.
1: And I I found that to be very helpful, especially for the minor characters and sort of getting the backstory of what was going on.
0: Yeah. Uh, Cool. So
1: if you need help learning about who all the different uh, Green Lanterns and (laughs) who Adam Strange is and, you know, all the kind of things that were going on.
0: Yeah, we should read some of Alan Moore. Alan Moore did a bunch of, like, Green Lantern stories, but they were little short stories. He never had, like, a ongoing run with the character. It might be interesting to read those at some point.
1: If you start reading Green Lantern, then you're just going to collapse it, because every time you read a comic book or you talk about a comic, whatever is happening in the greater world, when you started watching Swamp Thing, the show was canceled. Oh,
0: yeah, but... Some, <laughs> you started a... reading
1: Vertigo, and now Vertigo yeah,
0: but... <laughs> We read Dark Harvest, and they got a movie. <laughs> that's so true. I don't know, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I really don't want Green Lantern to get canceled. But <clears> maybe <throat> I'll intervene and I'll stop another bad Green Lantern movie from getting made. <laughs> Who knows?
1: Yes, use your powers for good.
0: Well, uh, that's it. This is a long episode because you know this was another uh, wrap up. You know, another another ending to a series. Now we have two full comic series under our belts, which is cool. I guess I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sounds seems cool to me. Uh, so, spoiler alert! Stay tuned and uh, let the good times roll.